Isaiah 26, you may notice that Daniel is not here this morning. Daniel and Sarah, for some reason, decided to get married last night. It was actually very fun, and it was a great time together, and they will actually be back next Sunday, and so I'm sure uh, you'll want to be here to welcome them, and uh, it'll be a lot of fun to have them here, and we've got a few other people that are starting to trickle back as well from being at home and things like that, and you'll see some more of them next week, so it's going to be uh, start start filling up a little bit more with uh, some of our young adults that have been home for a while. And uh, it's going to be a good time. It'll be a lot of fun next week, so I encourage you to be here. Chapter 26, chapter 26, once again, uh, thank you, Zach, for reading those first few verses. And we're going to walk through the whole chapter this morning uh, because really you have to understand it as a full section. Chapter 26 is set in the flow of the chapters that are around it that are just really marvelous if you spend the time to understand what they are about. This section of Isaiah really is a lot like the book of Revelation, uh, dealing with really huge, big issues that go through human history, right to the end of human history. And in Isaiah 24, a few weeks ago, we saw that a prediction of the destruction of the whole earth, the establishment of God's reign in Jerusalem, uh, just glorious uh, for all eternity. And that, w- that was chapter 24, great, marvelous chapter. Chapter 25, last week, we talked about the resurrection from the dead, how God is going to spread a feast. If you remember, if you were with us or if you watched online, a feast, a banquet for all people, swallowing up death forever. We're going to sit at his banquet table and, wow, it is going to be awesome. We're going to enjoy God forever. And at the end of chapter 25, it was kind of odd, and we talked about that last week, there was this little jab at Moab at the end of this feast. And I really think it's it's symbolic of the wicked of the earth that do not submit to God and dealing with God's judgments, basically getting crushed under the judgments of God, unable to escape them, to get away from what God is doing in judgment. And that's the end of 25, and that sets literally the table for 26. If you look at this whole chapter, as we look at it this morning, this is an encouragement given to God's people, the oppressed people of God, before God does the great deliverance. He's feeding the oppressed. He's he's feeding the suffering people of God. With what? With encouragement. With verses, with song that helps to endure until the final judgment has come. And that is what this chapter is about. Now, Zach already read verses 1 through 6, and it really sets up the idea of a tale of two cities. Taking the cue from Dickens and the contrast that he sets up in the tale of two cities, I think it's very similar. I think actually Dickens probably got the idea from this. You have the city of Moab found its strength in what when we were reading that, when Zach looked at that with us in the first few verses there, found its strength in a walled fortress on high ground. Now, Jerusalem has unequaled strength because God will appoint salvation for walls and and bulwarks. As it says there, ramparts. But the city of Moab showed its fear by closing gates. Behind these, these walls, this protected space. And... It really, I'm just going to shoot straight with you, it really reminded me of how the world tried to deal with the last two years. We're going to hide and hide behind these walls. 
and we're going to close the gates. And somehow that's going to make everything better. All right? So I just want you to, I want to paint that picture to you because history has this little ugly habit of what? Repeating itself. And so Moab showed its fear by closing the gates behind high walls. Jerusalem, though, did what? Opened its gates for all people, nations. And that was a daring venture. A daring venture. But there's a reason why it worked. Because the mind, the disposition, the direction was fixed on a trust in Yahweh. The immovable, as it says in verses 3 and 4, everlasting rock of salvation. And it's the perfect picture of the security of the believer in Jesus Christ. John 10, verses 28 and 29, I give them eternal life and and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. We are secure in Christ. Some of you may know the name of John Newton hymn writer, and he had to be thinking of Isaiah 26 in part when he wrote the words to the hymn, glorious things of thee are spoken. Glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion, city of our God, he whose word cannot be broken, formed thee for his own abode. On the rock of ages founded, what can shake thy sure repose With salvation's walls surrounded, thou may smile at all thy foes. That's Isaiah 26, verses 1 through 6, put to a poem, to song. And it's really the song of trust in in God's protection. Am I going to be like the world where I'm told to build up walls and close the doors and hide out? Or am I going to be what God has said to be? Open the gates. Let the people come in and praise the Lord. And have our eyes and our focus on Him and Him alone. And this section of Scripture is telling us it's a tale of two cities. A city of man and a city of God. The city of man is all about fear. Does that sound familiar? This world's running around afraid of everything. Afraid of recessions, afraid of, I mean, just, it's every single minute of the day they're afraid. And what are we supposed to be like as Christians? I have no fear because No one can snatch me from his hands. Go ahead and try. It's not going to work. I'm going to keep the gates open. You can kill me. Please. I'll be in heaven. One author I read this week tells a story of a battleship. Because before I get to that story, just a reminder here. The foot will trample at the feet of the afflicted, the steps of the helpless. In the tale of the two cities, the city of man gets blown up. It's on a collision course with the city of God. And which one stands? The city of God. And one author this week I was reading tells the story of a battleship sailing through the fog during the dark of night, and the lookout spots this faint flashing light ahead and warns the captain on the bridge. And he sends out the captain on the bridge 
sends out a radio message. The captain orders the other vessel to change course. And he says, I'm going to smush you. I am a battleship. I am a battleship. The message comes back, the counter command to the captain of the battleship. I am a lighthouse. Who changed course? And that's the picture, that's the tale of the two cities. Moab is on a collision course to death, unless there's a change of the heart. Unless things change. Every single one of you who are a Christian in this room today know that change is needed in order to accept Christ as Lord and Savior. Amen? There was a change of heart. There was a change of direction. It's a whole idea of repent, to turn, to go a new direction, a direction towards God. And Isaiah probably would have issued the same command. God, the everlasting rock, envisioned Jerusalem as the city that would be the light of the world, all other cities, all other nations that trust in the strength of their own high places, their own solid walls, they have to change their course in order to enter the gates of the city of God. Otherwise, they will be laid low, as it says, low to the ground, trampled like dust. And as Christians, we need to understand something. And maybe you're not a Christian in here today, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But here's the deal, everyone. We have to remember this every single week, every single day of our lives. God's eternal plan is right on schedule. Nothing can stop His plan. And... God's at peace with his plan. With him, there's not a shifting shadow. There's not a doubt. There's not a fear of anything ever, ever, ever. We're, we're following a God that it's not like, oops, I didn't see that coming. And because of that, God keeps a believing person in that kind of godlike peace if we keep our eyes on him i think a parallel verse in the new testament very much is philippians 4 verses 6 and 7 we read some of that this morning obviously on purpose but do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer, petition, thanksgiving, present your request to God. The peace of who? God. The peace of Yahweh, which transcends all understanding. We can't even begin to fathom His peace, but the peace that's given to us the, that through God is amazing when you actually accept that peace. The peace of God transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And you can see how connected that is to Isaiah 26. The peace of God will be a wall around you. That will be the wall around you. God will be keeping you peaceful if you just trust in Him. If you just trust in Him, whatever is troubling you, whatever is burdening you today, whatever, whatever sin that has been there, whatever that, that, you, that you feel the guilt of, whatever financial troubles, whatever anxieties about the future, whatever medical issues, whatever relational issues, if you are troubled, bring it to God and lay it at his feet. Give it to him. Cast your burdens. That's what it means. Cast your burdens on him. Let him protect you. Protect your mind. Let him keep you in perfect peace. Because the walls that you build 
the walls that the world builds, the whatever gates that we try to close, guess what happens? They all fail. And that's what this is saying. Trust, as it says in verse 4. Trust in the Lord forever. For in God, the Lord, we have an everlasting rock. And that's the city of God. Verses 5 and 6 show us the city of man. Humbles those who dwell on high. The lofty, he lays the lofty city low. He levels it to the ground and casts it down to the dust. Feet trample it down. The feet of the oppressed, the footsteps of the poor. And these poor and oppressed people of God are going to get trampled. That happens. We see that. Jesus said that we will be persecuted, right? We will be persecuted by wicked forces in human history. Many of you know that in job situations, different things like that. You try to live, leave as, live as a believer and live according to convictions of the Scriptures. And what happens? You get thumped. You're an outcast. But in the end, who's doing the trampling? Who's doing the walking over the dust? God's people. When the judgment of God comes, who reigns? Christ, the head of the church, and his people. We are going to walk over the piles of rubble of the city of man and celebrate. Now, we live in an interesting city right now because we're seeing more and more piles of rubble. Literally. We are seeing this city disintegrate. Right? But God's church won't. It'll remain strong. It will be victorious in the end. One of my favorite verses in Romans is what I call a power verse. In Romans 16, the God of peace, when talking about God's peace, what does this peace do to the world? Crushes Satan underneath your feet. Does that sound eerily familiar to Isaiah 26? The footsteps of the poor, the oppressed, the believers, the followers of God are going to walk over the piles of rubble and celebrate. And I've told this story before, but one of the most powerful, some of the most powerful moments in early ministry for me was we sang a song that was just Romans 16, and it just said, the God of peace will soon crush Satan, soon crush Satan underneath your feet. And the whole youth ministry would stand up on the chairs and in unison you would see hundreds of teenagers jump down and smush symbolically Satan underneath their feet. And it was awesome, everyone. So I want everyone to stand up and get on their chairs. No, I'm just kidding. But... Just, it was those one, it, it, just a moment of the symbolism of that, that it's not symbolism, it's true. It's a great verse because it's a great truth. And so, in this tale of two cities, the simple question is, what city are you living in? Are you living in the city of God? Are you living in the city of man? We'll resolve that question a little bit later. But in the midst of this song of trust for God's protection, it turns into a lament. 
I don't know what you're like in life, but I am not a fan of waiting. Is anyone else not a fan of waiting? I mean, it's like, and a lot of things. But one thing is like, God, I would really prefer you to come back now. All right? I, I love your plan, but I would love your plan more if you came back now. And it's a lament while waiting for salvation that is very interesting here in verses 7 through 18. And Davis is going to come up and read that for us. I encourage you to walk along with him as he reads verses 7 through 18. The word of the Lord says this. The way of the righteous is smooth. O upright one. Make the path of the righteous level. Indeed, while following the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for you eagerly. eagerly. Your name, even your memory, is the desire of our souls. At night, my soul longs for you. Indeed, my spirit within me seeks you diligently. For when the earth experiences your judgments, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. Through the wicked is shown favor. He does not learn righteousness. He deals unjustly in the land of uprightness and does not perceive the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, your hand is lifted up, yet they do not see it. They see your zeal for the people and are put to shame. Indeed, fire will devour your enemies. Lord, you will establish peace for us, since you have also performed for us all our works. O Lord, our God, other masters besides you have ruled us, but through you alone we confess your name. The dead will not live. The departed spirits will not rise. Therefore, you have punished and destroyed them, and you have wiped out all remembrance of them. You have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have extended all the borders of the land. O oh Lord, they sought you in distress. They could only whisper a prayer. Your chastening was upon them. As the pregnant woman approaches the time to give birth, she writhes and cries out in her labor pains. Thus were we before you, O oh Lord. We were pregnant. We writhed in labor. We gave birth, as it seems, only to wind. We could not accomplish deliverance for the earth nor were inhabitants of the world born. These verses describe the spiritually healthy life of the person who is living in the suffering and waiting for God to fulfill His purposes for deliverance. Isaiah here speaks of the path of the upright. Despite the suffering, despite the opposition, what is the path? Level. The path level, made smooth by the commands of God. Now, that doesn't imply that the suffering of the people uh, is as nothing, if the suffering that we go through as Christians is as nothing, but it's far better to suffer for doing right than to succeed in doing wrong. God's commands in a very interesting, particular way, smooth the way. Walking in the way of your laws, we wait for you. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet, a light for my path. Isaiah 35 that we'll look at in a few weeks in more in depth, a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it. As the people of God live for God, do God's will, we have to wait for God. We have to wait for His plan to be completed. And waiting for God 
is never easy. Psalm 13, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have overcome. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. But... Righteous hearts do end up finding rest in God alone. There will be those times when you feel like what is said there in Psalm 13. But in Psalm 63, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. The righteous, the path is smooth, it's long. At times we cry out, when is, when is this, when's the journey over? But in this journey, you know what we end up doing while we wait for the Lord? What it says there in verse 8, Indeed, while following the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for you eagerly, your name, even your memory, is the desire of our souls. What is, what, what's our desire supposed to be? God's name. God's reputation. His renown. And you know why? Because we the righteous ones who have accepted Christ as Lord and Savior who are in Him, we are looking forward to being vindicated by a righteous judge. And God makes the way of the righteous level and straight by building upon His judgments and our desires. And it's called this, and it's something that the people have wrestled with for years as a is an understanding, but it's divine sovereignty and human freedom that work hand in hand. In his judgments, Israel has learned that God's only purpose in the purging of its soul through the suffering of exile is preparation for redemption. And if then Israel has the spiritual hunger to wait for the return of the Lord, to yearn for the privilege of bearing His name, to remember His glorious deeds, then the promise is given. The inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. But there's a startling truth that's embedded in this. And it's a truth that every single one of us have seen in life. The wicked do not learn righteousness when the grace of God is shown to them. We actually see that in the New Testament as well. When we read the parables of Christ, we go, oh, that makes sense. That's incredible. But what was happening with the people that were not his followers around him? They heard the exact same words and were confused. Totally off base. And that's what we see here. The righteous do not learn, or the, I'm sorry, the unrighteous do not learn. The wicked will not respond in the way that you would hope they would respond. And we see that, right? There's so many times it's like, come on, just... Just respond in, in a righteous way. And they're incapable of doing that because who's in control of their hearts? What city are they living in? Even with the hand of judgment hanging over their heads, they will not respond correctly. 
and all of this is resolved with the what direction of your is your mind and the direction of your soul. What we see here is even though the children of Israel had rebelled against the love of God and denied their thirst for His name, they could not escape their spiritual heritage and their miraculous history. They were still God's people. And they were like the prodigal son who came to his senses in a pig pen. They remember the father's house and they go, I, I want to go there. I want to go to the city of God. And we see here as this flows through in this chapter, a prayer of confession. The, the people of God acknowledge that all their efforts to win peace by trusting in kings and rulers and armies and alliances, what has happened in all of that misplaced trust, it failed. All those who held dominion over them are destroyed, are, are dead, are forgotten. Only trust in God has brought them peace. Permanent peace through His glorious deeds. More than that, God has added the bonus of doing what other rulers promised to do and failed. In keeping His promise to Abraham, He increased the numbers of the nation and expanded all of its borders. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of who you follow. It's a matter of who you put your trust in. One Christian writer that died a few years ago said that many contemporary Christians claim Jesus as the Savior of their soul but do not permit Him to be Lord of their life. And Isaiah is condemning these people for continuing the habit of worshiping God in the temple but accommodating the idols of the marketplace. And this is where it's going to get very personal for some of us right now. If you're trying to keep the tension in the two worlds, the city of God and the city of man, and you're trying to live in both, it will never bring peace to the soul. Because we see here, all other masters will be destroyed. They will die. They will disappear. Only the lordship of Jesus Christ will bring peace. Will bring the peace that we desire and fulfill the promises in, of enlarging our witness and expanding our world. With, with Judah, then we will sing something as it says there in verse 15. I'm going to turn over in my Bible to that. You have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. What does it say there? You are glorified. And we will be singing that as Christians. You are glorified. And this prayer of confession continues as the people of Judah confess that they found no peace under the dominion of other masters in whom they put their trust. They now confess that they're turning to God during times of trouble. And when they did that, that was not genuine repentance, but really was more about self-deliverance. As it says in verse 16, they were likening themselves to what? A, a pregnant woman. Nearing the time of delivery, cries of pain it gave them some relief, but had no bearing on the delivery and, and pressing this all the way out to its limit, they confessed that all their efforts gave birth only to wind. To nothing. A vapor. And Isaiah had already spoken these really hard words against Israel for, for religious Activity without a heart. He said it in his opening of the whole book in chapter 1, in verse 
15. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Confess the sin. And they do. They had tried to use religion as a means of saving themselves in times of crisis. Perfect picture of this for everyone. 98% of us today got here by a car that's sitting out in the parking lot. What's in the back of your car or underneath your car in some cases? Spare tire. And we make God too small when we use him like a spare tire that's in our car. We wait until we have an emergency and then we try to use God. We, we live as if we don't need him before that. Now, I'm dating myself a little bit here. But spare tires didn't used to be these little emergency spare tires. They, they were just another tire. <laughs> and you would throw them on there, right? And it was like, no biggie. So I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about now. Today, the spare tire is a temporary tire. I, I looked, it says on mine, do not drive over 100 miles on this tire. God is not a quick fix. God is not the small emergency tire to keep going in life. And that's what Judah is realizing here. That's what the people of God are realizing here. Oh, we can't live like he is there just in our times of crisis. He's not a quick fix. They admit that they had not accomplished any deliverance in the earth, nor the inhabitants of the world. It's a tragic conclusion. And it's really like it's a picture of Judah's like a person nearing the end of life who confesses that, that he or she missed the purpose of life altogether. All the attempts to be the deliverer and ruler of nations had brought nothing but a gust of wind. And it was gone. But now they know the, only their total trust in the Lord. The Lord alone will deliver them, nurture them, save them. Because He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen? And that's the joyful end that we see here in this chapter, starting in verse 19. Your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. For your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. Come, my people, enter into your rooms, close your doors behind you, hide for a little while until indignation runs its course. For behold, the Lord is about to come out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will reveal her bloodshed and will no longer cover her slain. One sentence. It's all that's needed here. Ultimate victory for God and his people is guaranteed. And what about the righteous people who suffered and died along the way? What about the martyrs whose blood was shed by wicked tyrants while God was still waiting to fulfill his plan? Let's jump to the book of Revelation chapter 6. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony that had been maintained. 
They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. That's pretty powerful. Wait, wait for the Lord's work to be done. There is a high likelihood that people in this very room could not just be persecuted for belief in Christ, but be a martyr. It happens all over the world, and it happens here. You just don't hear about it. But one of the things that we need to understand is verse 19 of Isaiah 26 is one of the clearest promises of individual resurrection in the Old Testament. As dust symbolizes death, what do we say at a graveside service? Dust to dust. Do symbolizes life. Before God created the rain to fall upon the earth from the clouds above, he provided the dew of the ground to water the earth and bring forth fruit. Dew then is the life from heaven and the source of resurrection power symbolically. Isaiah has a message here that cannot be argued with or denied. God is the source of our hope for resurrection. Jesus made it clear that he is the resurrection. In John 11, Jesus said to her, as it says in verse 23, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Daniel chapter 12 Verse 2, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Are you looking forward to the resurrection, your resurrection And Isaiah closes this all out with, in the meantime, he doesn't say it this way, but I'll say it this way. In the meantime, write it out. Write it out. Go, my people, enter your rooms and shut the doors behind you. Now, this is a different understanding than the city of man, who's hiding behind man-built walls and gates. Enter your rooms, shut the doors behind you, hide yourselves for a little while until his wrath has passed by. This is God saying, just wait. Just understand, this is going to take time. See, the Lord is coming out of his dwelling to punish the people of the earth for their sins. The earth will disclose the blood shed upon her. She will conceal her slain no longer. If you're an Israelite, if you're a Jewish person listening, seeing this, what are you remembering? Right before being set free, they were told to go into their houses and paint the blood over the doorstep and just wait. Wait for God to do his work. Wait for God to establish his judgment. And isn't that what it's saying here? God's going to come out of his dwelling and punish the people of the earth. We take cover, we take shelter, but who do we take cover and shelter in? Christ. In His work. 
Yes, the people of God will have to go through suffering and wait on the Lord for his plan to be fulfilled. But the Lord will punish the wicked for the persecution of of the righteous. We see this in this scripture. The earth will disclose the blood shed upon her. Genesis 4.10, the Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Revelation 16, 5 through 7, you are just in these command judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged, for they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Final judgments of the Lord. And the final judgment is of and on Satan. The true enemy behind everything, everyone, all the persecution of all the people of God ever is Satan. The ancient serpent. And that's why in Isaiah chapter 27, I'm skipping, ver- skipping forward one verse to finish this out today. In that day, the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, with his fierce and great and mighty sword, even Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. This, this language seems so mythological, like watching some sort of movie. But it was Satan who chose to disguise himself as what in the garden? A serpent. And God promises to crush him forever. The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. Revelation twenty ten, and the devil who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet have been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So wrapping this all up, number one, and I've mentioned it a few times today, if you are living in the city of man, Get out of the city of man. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. He is the only refuge from the real storm. A storm that is here and a storm that's coming. He is our hiding place. Flee to Christ. Flee to the city of God. All you have to do is to cry out to the Lord. Ask Him to save your soul. Respond to the Holy Spirit calling you to Him. Believe in Him. Let Him be, as we said here earlier, the Lord of your life. Trust in Him. He's the refuge. He is the salvation. His walls will then surround you. And as scripture says, nothing can snatch you from his hand. I'll take God's walls anytime. Second, take heart the elements of this text that speak to you directly. For example, verse one, understand, like I just said, the security of being a believer. Understand that security. Maybe in verses 3 and 4, as I said earlier, learn how to rest by faith in God alone. Learn what perfect peace is. Don't be double-minded. Don't be one foot in the city of man and one foot in the city of God, but be completely and totally enveloped in the city of God, which means giving up the things of man. And that's a toughie. Satan makes those things pretty tempting, doesn't he?
but in light of that, we have to understand the future of the city of man. What is the future of the city of man? Falls apart. It's built on shifting sand. I mean, we can spend the rest of the day going through Scripture that tells us the difference between the rock, the city of God, and the city of man. And when you are weary, and when you feel weak, remember what city you're a part of. Remember to rest in Him and Him alone. Sing the song of trust. Sing the song of trust in God's protection, not man's. When you find yourself lamenting over how long we have to wait, remember the blood of the martyrs. Remember those who have gone before us that died for their faith. And remember the fact that even going forward, as long as the Lord and His plan is not completed, there's going to be more of that. But also remember, there is a day coming that God re-enters this land, the return of Christ. Oh, what a day that's going to be. And there's going to be a lot of us probably in this room that have already been with him if he waits a few more years or a hundred years or a thousand more years. Isn't that going to be fun to come down with them? Like, this is awesome. This is incredible. To be with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Come to Christ. Take heart while you live for Him in His peace and understand the future of both cities and make a decision on which city you live in. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you now in a